Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In the market for investment worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry? Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. And of course, if this is your first time listening or you just recently started listening to us, thanks very much for that. As you know, we're on Instagram and as our book club is coming up, we wanted to tell you a bit about it. We're going to be discussing Claire Keegan's latest story, which is called So Late in the Day. And you can send us voice notes via Instagram if you like, or even old school messages to let us know what you think about the book or indeed about anything else you'd like us to cover on the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is an urban culture trying to make the world a better place, one tree at a time. The trees arrived in bags, so 13,000 trees fit in a, in a white van. You know, they're tiny, they're, they're sticks in a bag. They have no leaves on them apart from the, the Scots pines obviously have their little needles on them, but everything else is just like dead sticks. And you go out, I went down on actually around about Easter time to do my first thinking, you know, I'd heard tell that foresters and and people who are used to it can plant thousands of trees in a day. And I thought, let's see how many I can plant in a day. And I started and I think I got maybe three or four hundred planted, which is a huge amount of trees, but I have never been as tired. That was the voice of Catherine Cleary there and she's going to be telling us how she came to buy land in Roscommon where so far she has planted 24,000 trees with a little help from her friends. I get hope from working with trees and soil because I can see the absolute health and vigour and life force of things that, you know, when you're in the flow with this, it's fixing itself. There's, you take one good step and nature takes ten. Before we talk to Catherine, one story that caught her eye is the fact that standalone criminal offences for stalking and non-fatal strangulation as well as longer maximum prison sentences for assaults came into effect from today. And this is from a story by Jack Power in the Irish Times. The maximum sentence for assault causing harm, which is common in cases of domestic abuse, has also been doubled from five to ten years, which is good news. And the existing offence of harassment has been broadened to include cases where someone seriously interferes with an individual's peace or privacy in a way that causes distress or harm. New standalone offences for stalking and non-fatal strangulation, which could previously be charged under different offences, are among the changes in the new law. And the new offence for stalking, and we're kind of surprised that there hasn't been an actual offence for just stalking on its own, but this new offence for stalking will carry a maximum sentence of 10 years in prison, while non-fatal strangulation or suffocation will have a maximum sentence of 10 years, rising up to life imprisonment if the incidents causes serious harm. So those are some positive developments because, as we know, most of the victims of stalking would be women. So this is positive news in that regard. Now, my guest today is, full disclosure, a good friend of mine, but she's also a source of great inspiration to many because in the last few years, she's embarked on a truly wonderful project which she wrote about recently in the Irish Times and I'd urge you to look up that article. Wanting to do their bit for the planet and the biodiversity crisis, Catherine Cleary and her husband Liam bought 40 acres of cheap-ish land in Roscommon with a view to planting 11 hectares, a forest bigger than St Stephen's Green. And they now 
now have a thriving, if small, forest and lots of other land that has sprung to life and made a home at various stages to a cuckoo, countless frogs, field mice, hares, foxes, birds, mewling buzzards, murmurations of starlings and even the rare sighting of a barn owl or two. Working with a forester, Bernard Kiernan, they purchased the land three years ago and the first batch of trees arrived on Catherine's birthday this year at the end of March. The load of 13,000 bare root trees in bags was small enough to fit in a single white van. The planting was difficult and stressful and had to be done by hand, boot and spade, but they had a lot of help from friends and family and eventually planting contractors. According to the carbon calculators, Catherine's Forest should begin to sequester significant amounts of carbon in about a decade. And she says forestry needs to become as sexy a job as chefing, something both women and men see as a tough but desirable and satisfying career. So here she is, Catherine Cleary, or Farmer Cleary, as I call her. Catherine, tell us how you went from crime to food to forests. <laughs> <laughs> from murders to meringues yeah. to maples. No, actually, we didn't plant any maples. Very well done. Um, <laughs> God, that's a, that's a good opening question, isn't it? Yeah, I was I was a hard nose, hard bitten crime journalist back in the nineties uh, here in this very building. No, not in this very building, in the old Irish Times building. Um, drugs and crime correspondent. Drugs and crime correspondent. Yeah, in the nineties, um, it was. Uh, I was just talking about it recently to somebody because I got an email out of the blue from a journalist researching something and he dug up out of the ancient history a piece <laughs> that I had written about a, a Dublin criminal. Um, and it read like something that somebody else had written because it feels like another lifetime ago that I was doing that kind of work. But it was fascinating. I mean, you really get to understand how society works. You understand the huge social problems that cause drug and crime um, and how solving those social problems is a big fix for that whole area. And we won't labour too much on it, but at the time, uh, was it unusual for a woman to be a crime correspondent? Obviously, Veronica Guerin had been doing a lot of investigations and stuff, but it kind of it was a very, still is to an extent, male-dominated area. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the areas I was reporting on in the 90s were very male-dominated. Uh, you know, I was in a particular press trip where I was the only woman on the plane. <laughs> and, uh, you know, at that time, it felt... You you just felt you got on with it. You know, you put up with the comments and the assumptions that you were getting stories because you had certain relationships with people. You know, it was pretty toxic now looking back on it. Yeah, I, re- I realised But normalised in your head, this was just part of the cut and thrust of daily absolutely. life. Yeah, it was how you had to roll and you rolled with it. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, Veronica was, she plowed a furrow for women journalists and they've been brilliant women crime journalists again. And they take an interest in, you know, male crime journalists do as well. But I think there's an interest there in the bigger picture of it as well. So okay. it's, it's a good aspect to bring to it. And from the crime to going to restaurants, fancy restaurants sometimes <laughs> and, uh, you know, critiquing them for the Irish Times. Yeah, I that was my segue into food was 21 years ago nearly when my my eldest son was born and Lee's Hand, who was editing the Tribune magazine at the time, said, you're the only one in the Tribune newsroom who knows how to cook. And I was. They were shocked. <laughs> they were shocking. They lived on Toner's Curry and, uh, and Ready Meals. And so she said, would you do a cookery column? The bar was very low at that stage. And uh, I thought about it and thought, God, you know, having been in that a male-dominated, hard-nosed, you know, therefore status world of journalism. It was a real sidestep to go into the women's world of cooking. <laughs> back into the kitchen. Back into the get yourself <laughs> back into the kitchen now with your notions of being a crime journalist. So, but at the time, I, I was living you. in yeah, I was living in Wicklow. My old school, the Dominican in Wicklow Town, had turned their beautiful, very um, you know, expensive land into an organic farm. And that was a real eye opener for me. I suddenly realised, oh, there are seasons and things grow at a time of year. And, you know, I realised there's never not going to be something to write about in food and farming and agriculture. So I wrote a cookery column for, I think, two or three years in the Sunday Tribune. Yeah, there's some archive somewhere with it sitting there. (laughs) My mother's bolognese recipe, I think, was one of the first ones that I pulled out of the bag. Um, and then Patsy Murphy, the former editor of the magazine in, in the Irish Times, emailed me at one point and said, would I take on the Irish Times restaurant column for a spell? So <laughs> I said, yes, please. Um, they always say for a spell and then you end up there spell. for many, many years. Yeah, I did actually in the end, yeah. yeah. But I think the food um, thing, funnily enough, it, there's a really uh, clear thread from that, isn't there, to where you are now and to what we're going to be talking about mm. today because mm. you mentioned that, realising seasons, agriculture, mm. Farming, all that kind of stuff, and it, and it's it's like um, 
it lit anyway, maybe a very small flame, but some kind of a flame in you that is now blazing uh, today. Yeah, I mean, you very quickly when you start writing about food and I was writing features as well as the restaurant column and seeing this kind of huge pride in chefs and in producers about what we could produce on, on this island. You know, we have an amazing climate for growing things and... Uh, and you could suddenly see that there, there is a really interesting story here. There's an interesting story about power and control and who controls the land and, and who decides what's grown on it. Um, there's an interesting story about women in kitchens as well. You know, that was part of the scene that was evolving when I was working in the, in the restaurant area. I did a, an event back in 2018, I think, called the Appetite Talks, which was based around that idea of... Um, where our food culture was going. You know, we had this very high-end restaurant culture which was growing, which was fantastic, you know, celebrating talents and and, uh, and ingredients. And then at the other end, we had this very intensive agricultural system um, really ramping up, especially during the recession um, and becoming a huge force in, in the country and a huge, a huge lobbying power as well. So that was really interesting to see. And it all goes back to... What are we doing with the natural world? You know, are, are we extracting things from it or are we going with the flow and making sure that it's going to be there for the next generation? Because I think you've always been um, very political in in a small p sometimes and a bigger p in other times. And I remember years ago talking to you about possibly getting into politics and maybe that was your contribution. That didn't actually happen in the yeah, end. Yeah, I mean, 2018 was the IPCC report which told us in, you know, very frightening language that we had 12 years and that really hit me. I mean, I, I, I burst into tears when I read the reports of that report um, because I'd been in the space of trying to, you know, writing about transport, writing about retrofitting our, our house, moving back to the city because we didn't want to commute. You know, all of those things that I could see would make people's lives better and would also give us a better chance at, you know, tackling climate change um, because it was very obvious to me that this was a massive problem despite all the denial which we now know was funded by fossil fuel companies you know there's been an incredibly um, damaging delay which was very deliberate so yeah I did think in 2018 should I how can I use my voice how can I do something I did think god will I will I stand for some kind of political office but actually I physically couldn't I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't even my head couldn't even get around that idea um you know it's it's I have huge admiration for anybody in politics at the moment especially somebody who's there to try and make things better because it's it's not an arena that I could enter but to another p then pocket forest so yeah. again which is political because I think everything is when you're trying to make a a change in the world and make things better. Um, tell us about Pocket Forest and how you came up with that with your friend. Yeah, so 2020 came and as we know, the um, world shut down and we were, uh, my, my good friend Ash Conrad-Jones, we live three streets away from each other. Our kids are in school together and we were suddenly locked down in at our 2K zone, which was very, very um, suffocating, I think, for its lack of green space. That spring was happening and she came across this idea. She loves all things tiny, tiny donkeys, tiny <laughs> dogs, ponies. And her partner sent her this piece about tiny forests. And she, we both looked at this and said, this is incredible. This is such an amazing idea. It started in the 1970s with a Japanese botanist. He was still alive at the time. He died only just last year. And he loved, Japan is very forested, but it's also very urban. And he loved forests and he loved the idea of being able to bring them into urban areas. So he looked at the components of a forest, you know, these tall trees, smaller trees, shrubs and ground cover. And he came up with an idea to plant them in really tiny areas. You know, they, they are very tiny. Um, and it just seemed like such a great fix for our part of the city where our green spaces were being chewed up all the time. We've student housing been built all around us. You know, thousands and thousands of new people coming into the area. This is Dublin 8. In Dublin 8, yeah. And less... Very trendy Dublin 8, I might say. It is now, yeah. <laughs> But it's uh, it's where my my grandmother, my great grandparents grew grew were there. You know, I have huge, a huge huge love for the area. Um, but at the same time, it's becoming very very intense intense place to live because of the in intensity of housing, which is great. You know, that close to the city, you do need to have seven stories and all those kinds of things. But you also need to have intense green spaces, and that's what this model seemed like. So our first kind of step into it was to see 
is anybody doing this in Dublin? Can we get in touch with them and say, can you put one in our neighbourhood? And then we found out, no, there isn't anybody doing it in Dublin. Um, and was it just to say back to that guy in Japan, is it? Or yes. Just, yeah. Did he have a thing called Pocket Forests or did he? No, so he had worked in India with a, an Indian car engineer called Shibendu Sharma doing a pocket forest outside a Toyota factory. And Shibendu, being an engineer, loved this and then put together a process for doing it. And he called it Tiny Forests. Okay. So Shibendu had come to the Netherlands in 2015 with his idea. They had grown one in Europe showing that it's perfectly suitable for European conditions as well. Um, and then we spoke to the, the group in the Netherlands that were doing it to find out how they went about doing it, what reaction they were getting to it. And the more and more, the more we talked to people and actually Dan from IVN, the, the Dutch group was just so generous with his time. You know, we were all at home in our Zoom screens talking to each other. And he said, look, I knew nothing about forests five years ago, but this has been one of the best projects we've ever taken on. Um, and, you know, if we think we're tight for space in Dublin 8 in the Netherlands, it's even worse you know it's a tiny country with 19 million people every square inch of ground is battled over so they were finding that this model worked really well the lo the really exciting thing was that people get to build these forests themselves in the urban areas it's not something that landscapers come in and do um, so with that we we said right well let's try and learn as much as we can about this and come up with our own version of it we called it pocket forest because the tiny forest idea involves a lot of heavy machinery coming in and digging out a metre of soil. We didn't really see that as being something we might. One day I might drive a digger, but no, I, I don't. <laughs> I, I have no doubt, I, Catherine, no doubt at all. Come on. But not, an electric but not today. if they exist. And also they <laughs> were doing a tiny, tiny garden version of it. Um, toonie is the Dutch word for garden. So they were calling, riffing on that, calling it toonie forest. And Dan kind of in passing said, oh, and some of our garden forests are doing really well and we don't dig out a metre of soil. So that kind of piqued our interest and we said, oh, so you can put these in really small spaces. We looked at, he was generous enough to share, share in the nursery list of species that they were planting, very similar to, you know, a lot of the same native Irish species um, are native to the Netherlands as well. Um, so it just, it was just really exciting. Yes, this can be done and, and let's let's give it a go. So did it start in the pandemic then, you, then your, your first tree planting? Yeah, so we, we went about 2020, we started researching, we did a plot in Mercy Secondary School in Inchicore was our first Love one. Love that school, we've had the Mercy girls on this school. podcast. Brilliant school. Michelle, the principal, was just so open to the idea. The girls were delighted with the chance to go and dig up the lawn and start, <laughs> you know, bring it in. We had donkey manure and... <laughs> And we had a lot of fun doing that and they were hugely involved in designing it and figuring out where it is. And you can now see it on Google Maps. It's this lovely circular forest where they sit in there when there's, you know, too much going on at playtime or, you know, it's now a mixed school as well. So there's a lot of football going on. So for a quieter space, they've got this pocket forest. They have an outdoor classroom and we got a, a text from a, one of the teachers the other day just saying the, bird, the window was open and she could just hear birds singing and dancing around in the pocket forest. So that's, yeah, our work. Our work is very, very satisfying when you get texts like that back. That's brilliant. But you didn't stop with the pocket forest. And you were doing them all around the city and people can get in touch. I'm going to yeah, talk a bit yeah. more about it later. But so how did you get from there to the sort of dream of really expanding it? I want my own big piece of land where I can plant many, many more trees. Because like you told me this, we're friends and you told me, I, I remember we were sitting at a dinner table and I just couldn't get over it that you had gone and bought this land and yeah. what you were doing. So tell everyone how you grew from Pocket Forest to this other project. Yeah, niggling at the back of my head, back in 2019, I had gone to a two-day native woodlands training course and I kind of sat in the room not really knowing why I was there. I wasn't there as a journalist. It was mainly f landowners and foresters and ecologists who were in the room and it was fascinating. Declan Little, who's the man, he's one of the leading experts in native woodlands. He was the man who was behind that genius idea back in the millennium where they gave us all a, a native tree. You know, we got a candle and we got a tree and a certificate number. So I'd always kept in touch with it and I'd always been fascinated by it. And day one of the conference was a lot of PowerPoint, very interesting but it was PowerPoint. But day two was a trip to a forest nearby in Enscary. And it was, there were some old oak trees that had begun to seed themselves because they deer fenced, they kept the deer out and they planted new trees. And I stood in this dripping, wet, mossy oak forest and something just shifted in me. And I thought, I really want, I really want a piece of this. <laughs> in, in I just thought it was an incredible place to be. And I'd never been anywhere like it before. 
Um, and there are so few fragments of it left. So. And was it the fact that the oaks were seeding and then through those seeds were building new trees? Was that yeah. kind of almost emotional for you? It feels like... Very much, yeah. And and very much that feeling. And I, and I think, and there's good science about all of the chemicals that are in the air and how we are, when we are standing in those amazing places, how good we feel in them. You know, it, it's, it's, it's very woo-woo, as, as Ash always says, but, you know, it's also science. We are our bones know that, that we're safe there. We're safe in forests. You know, our ancestors found their food and shelter and clean water there. So it makes sense that we have this enormous connection. It's not, you know, the membrane isn't that thick between that time when when places like that were places of, places that we felt were sacred. You know, we had all kinds of spirits. Trees were felt to have their own spirits. Uh, Moncon has written beautifully about this as well. Trees, rivers, all of the natural world. Because we were so interconnected with it, so dependent on it, you know, we don't need to depend on that. And that's great freedom for, for most people. Most people love, I mean, I love the fact I don't have to go out and look in a field for my breakfast. You know, it's great to be in a modern, comfortable life. But there's something there that, that we need to keep connected to as well. So that lit the sort of spark and you went off looking. Did, you, did it take much persuading your husband, Liam? Was he on board from the beginning? It was funny. I think it was a COVID thing. We both felt that sort of, I mean, because we'd kind of both run away from rural yeah. Ireland. In, you call in yourself a way. urban cultures. Urban cultures, very much urban cultures, you know. Um, urban boggers. <laughs> bog, bog, boggers to the core. <laughs> Although he's more of a Midlands bogger. I was more of a, an East Coast bogger. And uh, yeah, I mean, we kind of ran away that, you know, our lives were urban. We wanted to be in cities. We love the city. But, uh, I mean, initially we looked at much smaller plots of land and we weren't going to go anywhere near what we eventually did. But we just thought, now's the chance. Let's see if we can buy something, um, see if we can get the native woodland license to plant and, and go from there. So it was very much, let's see if we can do this at the start. And was it difficult to find land in the right price, at the right place? I suppose the main thing was you wanted to plant loads of trees, so the land had to be able to support that. Yeah, yeah. So we needed to go somewhere that the land was very cheap and that meant it was going to be very t- rough, uh, you know, flooded, uh, probably over-farmed, over-grazed land that nobody really wanted. Um, it's very hard to get land. I mean, we, we came close to buying or looked, we made offers on about about three places in the end. One of them, it was kind of Father Teddish. It had been owned, the estate agent who was kind of at the end of his tether at that point. <laughs> and it was owned by two priests. One of them wanted to sell, the other one didn't. We had, I think we'd offered near the asking price and then they took it off the market and put it back on for way more money in the end. So, yeah, there's all kinds of difficulties out there. And I, and I don't think it's gotten any easier to buy land. Um, eventually what we bought is, it's not in all in one holding. It's one is about a mile one area is about a mile from another area. But actually, that suits what we're doing because hopefully it will extend the habitat. There's lots of good hedgerows between our patches of forest that are around this area. Um, and it was, I mean, I think it would very easily have been sold in separate lots, but the owner wanted to sell it in one lot. So we were the only only buyer for it, really. But the, yeah, the sale fell through at one point and we went looking again and then the owner came back so yeah you're on so it took I'd say about a year to find somewhere Okay and tell everyone where it is and where, what exactly It's in Roscommon rural Roscommon yeah. um very, uh, very nice part of the world. Where's the nearest place you can get a train to? You can get a train to Carrick and Shannon it's probably the nearest spot and um so we're not too, we're about an hour from the Atlantic as well. I mean, the dream would have been to find somewhere beside the sea but you know, the money wasn't going to stretch to that um so it was, um, yeah, it's a part of the country I didn't know very well, but we've found the neighbours have been very welcoming, very happy to see us coming. And, you know, I tell them, yes, we're planting trees, but it's not Sitka. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, tell everyone why it's not Sitka and what, why that's relevant. Yeah, and it's funny, I've, I've been I've been looking at the Sitka, thing. I've been in two Sitka forests in the last two weeks and just trying to f- learn about some of that as well. And, and there is there is a very interesting issue there that, you know, Sitka is kind of demonised, but actually it's an amazing building material and we do need to build houses. And if we can build in wood, then there's a lot of ways to do that. And there's a way to farm farm Sitka because that's really what you're doing. You're farming trees rather than foresting them. There is a way to farm them that's much less environmentally damaging than the way that has been done um, recently. But these are, yeah, we have Scots pine. They're the only conifer because they're a native Irish. So we're growing Irish, native Irish trees Um 
which will be light-leaved. You know, they're not that very, very dark um, sort of corridors of Sitka that we see. And and Sitka itself isn't like that if it's let grown without the tight spacing and if it's let grown for longer, it can be, it's a beautiful tree. Mm. Um, But we grow it as a crop. So, you know, I think that makes people feel I'm going to lose you know, I'm going to lose that sense of land being there. It's just going to disappear under this monoculture of these lines of very dark trees. And uh, and people feel quite vociferous about, I don't want land swallowed up by that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f- are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Going back to your land, which is not going to be a Sitka. It hasn't. Sitka. <laughs> There's no Sitkas. Is there even one? No. There isn't. Although now, now that I'm thinking about it, there might okay. be, I might put a few in there. A little pocket yeah. Sitka forest, yeah, maybe yeah. see and yeah. do it properly. Um, but you needed a, a consultant. You need someone all the time with you, a forester. Tell yeah. us about the process. Yeah. So to access the grant, which is the government money that it pays to set up the forest and then pays you a premium or I said I wasn't going to use the word premium. It's such a farmery <laughs> word. It gives you a, an annual payment okay. to keep the trees in good uh, order. Uh, you have to work with the forester and you have to get a license from the Department of Agriculture. And for a long time, the licenses were being held up, partly because people were challenging licenses for Sitka or for felling Sitka. And it meant that the whole system got backed up very severely. So you could be waiting years for your license to plant um, what could help with our climate and biodiversity crisis. So they made a uh, they, they made a big push within the department to move things along. Um, but you still have to work with a forester and with a license to do this if you want to access the grants. You can plant trees without... Um, accessing a grant but to get the money you need you need to go through these these hoops hmm. So what did he help you with and, and what was your vision like did you have a very clear vision for what you wanted to do Yeah I mean the, uh, the vision was let's plant for climate and biodiversity let's try and get these trees into the ground it's also a way of I suppose regenerating that land because there are old we found one ancient stump of a really really old Scots pine that was obviously cut down from the land and there's no Scots pine there now Um, so it's about bringing back those habitats into that part of the country and then improving the land with trees Um, we had a great visit a couple of days ago to somebody who's 20 years further down the line than we are with this and has planted native woodland so it was wonderful to see their native woodland see what they're doing with it how they're managing it what it looks like even that exciting thing of wow this is how big they're going to get in 20 years so we, I mean, it, the vision is going to evolve, I think, as to what it's going to be and how we're going to use it and what we're going to, you know, what we're going to make from it. But that's kind of exciting as well, because I think the whole forestry field in Ireland is is at that stage as well. People are realising, um, you know, as, as Sean, the owner of this wonderful forest that we visited, was saying, this is one of the best countries in the world to grow trees. You know, we, we have... Best little country in the world to grow trees. Best little country in the world to grow trees. <laughs> we have an incredible growing season, you know, despite all of the difficult growing conditions for other crops this year, trees have been growing yeah. like topsy, lepping out of the ground, as somebody said to me. You um, wrote a beautiful piece recently in the Irish Times, sort of detailing what it's been like. The, the first trees arrived on your birthday, I think, in yeah. March this year. Yeah. So... I mean, it's backbreaking work, but very satisfying, as you said earlier. Yeah. Tell us about 
this time and how many trees you've planted and who you've because I haven't been down there to see it but it sounds amazing you will be soon right? yeah I know I'm dying to <laughs> but bring your shovel yes um, <laughs> yeah and and somebody emailed say you, you should point out the people don't have to plant them themselves so people don't have to plant them themselves a forestry company but you can, want can to typically do, right? we wanted to and also there well, at the time that we were doing it there was a shortage of labour that was available in our part of the country so the trees arrived in bags so 13,000 trees fit in a, in a white van you know they're tiny they're they're sticks in a bag they have no leaves on them apart from the the Scots pines obviously have their little needles on them but everything else is just like dead sticks um, and there are thousands and thousands of them and they'll last in the bags for a couple of weeks or you know but you have to get, but them, you in have the to get them in the ground <laughs> it's sort of a deadline <laughs> I know you're used to deadlines yeah. but this was urgent it's a very real <laughs> deadline lots of dead trees deadline um, and they started leafing up in the bags as well like the hazels began to push out these leaves and you know you're kind of thinking oh my god how are they even doing that There's no soil on you know just what they came out of the nursery and so the life force was brilliant um, and you go out. I went down on actually around about Easter time to do my first thinking. You know, I'd heard tell that foresters and, and people who are used to it can plant thousands of trees in a day. And I thought, let's see how many I can plant in a day. And I started and I think I got maybe three or four hundred planted, which is a huge amount of trees. But I have never been as tired. And <laughs> how long did that like all day? That was hours of work. Yeah, that was just hours with a pod, you know, a podcast or an audiobook, And, you know, you're on your own in a field um, dealing with this very, very wet, heavy soil and trees with different root systems. You're putting a spade in the ground, opening up a slot, putting the bare root tree into it and pressing it down or booting it in depending on how patient you're feeling and then walking on to the next one so it's amazing work um, it was you know you don't want to romanticise manual labour because it's very, I'm doing it from a very privileged position I'm not trying to make a living from this so yeah. you know it's it's me dropping into this world but it's it's incredible and it gives me huge respect for people who do that work and who are so badly paid for it as well because it is hugely important work and we don't pay people enough to do it. Um, you know, the, the team who eventually arrived were astonishing. They could plant a tree in about three or four seconds and then move on to the next one. Uh, and they planted 18,000, the other 18,000. So between us, we had some family over um, for Easter. We had a barbecue, said, come and plant trees. <laughs> Um, we had lots of family come and help and we between all of that and Burn at the Forester we planted about 6,000 trees and then the, the team came and planted the other 18,000. So you've around 25,000 trees. 24,000 trees. 24,000. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my math's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> um, and tell us about what it is like now sort of versus when I mean I know it's very early stages in terms of your forest but Presumably the environment and the biodiversity and all of those things, as you write so beautifully about in the Irish Times, has been transformed. Yeah, and it was there was a lot there already. Already, yeah. yeah. I mean, that was the thing. The Because we didn't have animals grazing it for a year, you could see this just coming to life in a way that if the grass hadn't got very tall, there wouldn't be as many, I mean, spiders and frogs. Spiders like I've never seen before, just literally filtering the midges out of the air because it's real midge country as well. And you realise there are fewer midges because there are millions of spiders and they're making these webs between the rushes and filtering like each web would have maybe 50 midges in it. So you know, there's all of that. There's, the bird life is astonishing. Um, I need to download an app where I can identify these birds yeah. and know what, what are there. We have we can see buzzards. We've seen buzzards coming over. We've seen a barn owl twice, which was just magical. Because they are... Um, Rare. They are rare right? and they're rare in the West as well. So, yeah, there is, um, you know, everything we can do to make habitat for those creatures who belong there. I mean, we work visitors most of the time we go down and we're not really, it's, it's a weird idea to feel like you own something like this because you can see everything that's there that's making use of it so much more than you are. Um, it's so wet that there are many, many frogs and toads as well. Like planting, sometimes you, something would hop and it would be a small frog. <laughs> and is there any like pondy bits or, you know, very yeah, wet parts? There will be. We have areas that we haven't planted, so we're hoping to do some ponds there and, yeah, make habitat for all those frogs that will move out of the forest area. And there is a dwelling out. on the land, but it's not exactly she she yeah it's uh <laughs> 
It's an old, yeah, it's an old cottage, so we may be able to do something with it at some point. But it's. But do you stay there when you? Go we down? camp. Yeah, we have a tent and a campfire, and yeah, we've we've put a floor into a shed, so there's somewhere dry and clean to be when it's raining, because it's pretty much raining all the time. <laughs> and, and we have, but we've camped in dry weather, which hasn't been very often this year. Um, so yeah, it'll be nice to pace ourselves. And a bit there what's a bit more. what sort of tell us about the? Um, you talked about the premium. We didn't want to get too much into farmer talk but there is a sort of a for other people listening who might be inspired what is how does it work financially yeah so you get a grant per hectare um to how many hectares do you have so we have 11 hectares planted um we have i think in acres for the we have 40 acres in total um so we've planted 27 of that which is 11 hectares and then the remainder the 13 acres is is not planted um so the establishment grant pays for the fencing and for the machinery to come in and prepare the land and for the trees and for the planting of them. Um, that goes through the forester who accesses that grant. And then we get a payment. The payment was increased from 600 uh, per hectare per year previously under the new forestry programme. It's up to 1,100. So it's nearly doubled um, for native woodlands. So the, the money is much more generous. If you're a farmer, you get it for 20 years. Um, we, as landowners, we only get it for 15 years. Uh, and after that, we, if you were if you were growing a Sitka crop or a or a um, a timber crop, you would grow it on for another 10 or 15 years and then harvest it. And that's that's where your payment comes. Um, the the thing that I think that puts some farmers and landowners off is that you then have a legal requirement to keep. The trees there. You have to replant it with forestry, um, so it's it's permanently forestry land uh, if you access. Which is those brilliant, plants. but I suppose, yeah. like you're saying, it makes people feel like it's too much of a commitment. Or yeah, there's there's a cultural issue around whether your land is forestry or farming because typically forestry land was much lower value, um, and farming land was much more valued. Um, there's a lovely mix of the two. I'm involved with the Irish Agroforestry Forum, and there. They've got really good examples of how you can put trees on your land and still farm it. Um, and you have huge benefits by doing that. You, the trees can improve your soil. The animals love them. They're almost like outdoor sheds for animals. Um, there's a brilliant farmer, Clive Bright in Sligo, who's doing that with his land. And he's hoping to have his herd entirely outdoors 12 months of the year. Um which is really, really beneficial environmentally because you're not having this massive buildup of slurry from having indoor housed animals, which then, uh, you know, can can cause problems with water and also is a, is a greenhouse gas source of greenhouse gases. Um, so those kinds of, I suppose, more in tune with nature farming models are there, but there's still a resistance, I think, to see forestry as there, there's less pride in being a forester I think than there is in being a farmer it's, it's strange and I think hopefully that's something that this new generation of uh, foresters coming out can can bring back into it and it, talking about you said you're not ma making a living but like if someone um, wanted to try and do what you did I know land is more expensive now than it was mm -hmm. even when you mm -hmm. when you bought it but people could get a loan they mm -hmm. could buy a thing and then the loan could quite quickly be yeah. repaid in term because of all these payments? Yeah, I mean, the, if you're buying land at a certain price, I can't remember, somebody worked it out, but if you're buying it at the average price for what they call marginal land, you know, the payments will pay for that land over time. And then you have a forest that you can get income from, whether it's from, uh, you know, initially it would be firewood and things like that. But then hopefully there will be a whole industry of makers, uh, crafters who can use timber from native trees as well as, you know, and, and again, you can have a Sitka element on your farm, which can be much more lucrative as well because it's great building timber. But we haven't uh, talked about the actual trees that are on it. You mentioned hazel, mm. uh, you mentioned a couple more. Tell us all the different trees that, are, that have been planted. Yeah, so we planted both kinds of oak, uh, both Irish oak, sessile and peduncolate. Uh, we have birch, there's a lot of birch on the land anyway, and willow. We planted willow as well in some of the wet areas. Um, hazel, Scots pine, alder, which is another water-loving tree, and crabapple. And then this winter we want to get a few more a, a more of a mix in as well and get rowan and cherry and some of those again these would be trees that nobody would grow for money because there's no money in them but they are beautiful and cherry trees cherry trees are gorgeous and have so much for insects and birds and um, you know and will look amazing again at this time of the year when they're changing colour they are just spectacular mm. so you know that's part of it it's, it's hopefully going to be a beautiful landscape as well as 
a home for many, many, many millions of creatures. And then back to the climate um, issues in terms of carbon and what what's that? How's that changing uh, that place that's down there and what it's doing for the for all of us for the environment? What has been the change? I think it's been, I mean, it's it's a very early stage now, um, but the trees are growing. You can see how they've just, they're just in their element. You know, there's there's the conditions that we're facing, you know, these very heavy downpours, these very uh, warm summers, but wet are perfect growing conditions for trees. So, yeah, I mean, it's it the place is beginning to feel like somewhere that's starting again uh, for a long time. And, you know, I'd go down on the train and, be there trying to figure it out. It felt like a place where everything had come to an end and, and now it's there's a whole new thing starting there and that's pretty exciting. You wrote in your piece, depending on how the trees grow and how the soil life grows with them, our 11 hectares could remove 120 tonnes of carbon a year. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of must be very satisfying. Yeah, and it, it, I mean, it sounds like a lot. And then you look at our carbon, you know, our average carbon footprint is 12 tonnes a year per person. So that's 10 people in a year. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so God, it does kind of reduce it a bit, doesn't it? Yeah. 120 tonnes of carbon sounds yeah. amazing. And then, so, yeah, I'm not, I haven't fixed everything, everybody. Right, that's still, terrible, Catherine. I thought you'd have fixed to, everything by now. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> we still need to reduce our carbon emissions. Yeah, and I mean, that's the tree offset thing is uh, increasingly looking like a, a bad idea because, you know, we don't have enough land. We still need to feed ourselves. We don't have enough land to um, offset the growing emissions with forests. We need to cut our emissions and grow the forests and protect the forests that are already existing. Um, but it it can be part of it. I mean, it, land use, this is where farmers can be the heroes in the next stage of this. Our land use is our biggest resource for uh, drawing down carbon out of the atmosphere and if, and we can still farm and we can still produce food but we have to do it in ways that are um, you know becoming carbon and nature positive. Um, the government gets a lot of criticism for a lot of things but they are pumping 1.3 billion euro into a new forestry programme and that's all about people like you planting more uh, trees and maybe not like you but people are in that who own land. So what does it mean? I mean does, is it, it's good news for you but also for other people who might be thinking of doing this? Yeah hopefully it's going to be good news you know the, the grants are extremely generous now um, the you know the, there's still if you're interested in making money from the system probably Sitka Crop is the one that you're going to go for but as I say, that is also comes with much more broadleaves planted as part of the mix. So it's not as monoculture as it was. Um, and there are ways that that can be managed that aren't as environmentally damaging. Uh, so but I think the, the interesting thing about all of this new money coming into forestry is that it, it, it's a great career opportunity for people. It's entire, almost entirely male at the moment. So I think more women in forestry would be amazing. Um I was down with a, a woman in Mullingar, near Mullingar, called Olive Levy, and she's um, managing a forest that her dad planted as his pension. She's just, uh, she's an amazing woman with a chainsaw. You know, she's really excited by that idea of continuous cover forestry, which is a, such an Forrester interesting... Barbie. Forester Barbie. <laughs> Her Definitely. job is tree. Yeah, her job is tree. Her job is wood. Her job is timber. Her job is biodiversity carbon. I mean, there's so many interesting and satisfying careers in this, in urban forestry. You know, we're going to have to get forests into cities, into parks, uh, back, you know, back to the pocket forest idea. We, When we work with kids, especially, you know, in schools where they they're, they have a lot of struggles. One one kid said to us, you know, I found my I found my life's calling, you know, <laughs> and, that's, God, and, and I think so many people feel like that about this work that we just we're really excited about being able to give people work, hopefully in the future in it. It was lovely when your article was published. I think the response was, I mean, people get criticised so much these days for even doing lovely things. But it was just a, a warm hug, I think, came to you. People were so grateful and inspired and loved what you'd written. And I think it's because it wasn't preachy at all, because sometimes we feel a little bit like guilt. Well, we a lot guilty that maybe yeah. we're not doing as much. But reading your piece, it just felt very like, oh, God, there's one person just trying to make a difference and it's possible. So to anybody listening, who might be similarly inspired like what would you say maybe not everyone can go off and buy land in Roscommon or anywhere yeah. else but 
What it, what can people do? Well, there's all kinds of ways that you can, you know, there are lo- lovely uh, organisations, the Native Woodland Trust do open days and you can go down and plant trees. The Home Tree do open days as well where you can also get involved. But it's also possible to pool resources and buy, you know, it doesn't have to be 40 acres. It could be five acres. It's better than nothing. With and a few friends, maybe, or yeah, family. or yeah. Absolutely. Or talk to family. I mean, we're not that disconnected from people who own land. Talk to family members who have a field that they're not doing anything with and say, have you heard about this native woodland scheme? Um, you know, it might be, it's a wonderful way to, as I say, give a piece of land that maybe is just very unloved, a whole new lease of life. And it's not a lot of work to manage it. You know, you can you can employ people. I think a lot of the, the older farmers would feel, you know, I don't want to have to learn how to use a chainsaw, but you don't have to. You, there are lots of young people who can come along and help um, manage the, the forest. So, I think there are many ways to do it and many ways to be a part of it. Hopefully, the there's an organisation called Nature Trust who are doing something similar to what we're doing um, and they're hoping in, in 10 or 15 years to be able to open up those forests as amenities so people can go and visit them, can go walking and, and sit in them and there'll be all of this information there for them as about what, what's planted and when it was planted and why. So a little bit like, I mean, the, the one thing that the Millennium Forest Project, I think, fell down on was we all felt really excited about having a Millennium Forest in our name, but we didn't really have a place where we could go and visit those trees. And, you know, the, I, I think a lot of them were probably lost to deer and, you know, there, there was kind of, there was great intentions, but not a lot of resources behind it. Whereas now I think there's more of a hunger for people to say, I would like to... Our native woodlands, they're only about 2% of of the country. You know, there's a tiny scrap of fragments of of native woodlands. So if we can re-establish them and make them public amenities, we can share them with people. I mean, that's our hope for what we're doing in Roscommon, that we can share it and make it open to people to come and visit as much as possible and learn from it as we're learning from it. Um, And as I think, we'll never stop learning from it. So that's, and I think that's why the great reaction came to the piece because somebody said it gave them hope, you know, and I get that. I get hope from working with trees and soil because I can see the absolute health and vigour and life force of things that, you know, when you're in the flow with this, it, it's fixing itself. There's, you take one good step and nature takes ten. Um, and that's that's the hope that I wanted to communicate to people. And um, yeah, I got the best emails from people, <laughs> including the funniest one from somebody who said he hoped he lived long enough to see a chuffing spackle spot, which was my <laughs> my made up <laughs> made up name for a bird because uh, <laughs> I'm not very good on identifying birds. Chuffing spackle spot was excellent. Spot. Great one. Um, now, Catherine. Um, meanwhile, Pocket Forest is still going from strength to strength. So mm-hmm. we thought we could do a little live consultation, Suzanne. When we were talking, Suzanne. Um, who produces the podcast with me, we were talking earlier about what could you do and she has a bit of land in front of her house. It's uh-huh. paved over. Uh-huh. So um, Suzanne, come over here and tell Catherine about the bit of land you have that's paved over that you might like to get a few trees on and how she can help. Yeah, so it, Roisin's saying it sounds like I've a bit of land but I mean it's the space of, <laughs> it's the space of where you'd fit a car. An so yes, <laughs> no, it's uh, I, I never think of it as land or frontage. But it is land. It is <laughs> yeah. front. You've done well, Suzanne. It is. Frontage. Now, yeah. We we had two cars and we made the decision to sell the car that was just, you know, catching cobwebs and sitting there and gathering leaves from the trees above. (laughs) So it's paved and it's just dead space in front of the house. So I my dream would to be fill it with trees and flowers and just have this really lush part of the garden. But I, I so don't doable. actually know where it's to so start. Doable, right? Is so it a Kango hammer? Have you? Can you get your hands <laughs> yes. with a Kango hammer? <laughs> I've never used one, but I, I've seen them used, and yeah. So it depends on the paving. Is it liftable, yeah. or do you um, have to Kango it? Is it's it kind of cobble, cobbly. I okay. Think. Yeah, you could definitely remove it, and there yeah. will be soil under it. And that, I mean, the car parking space is our pocket forest's smallest yes. size, so we fit t- uh, f- twelve trees and shrubs into that space planted super closely and actually that's one of the questions is when you think of uh, planting a forest in front of your house you're (laughs) thinking uh, are the trees going to grow really high and block all the light and everything like is there a way that you can do it that you're just you're minimising the height of it so it's not reaching up to the bedroom definitely I mean that's the thing about we plant them when they're two year old whips so they're knee high and by you know second growing season they're 
two metre high. And then at that point, you just begin to top them and say, this ah, is how high you're going to okay. get. So it's a little bonsai forest, basically. Yeah. It's not a forest, but it's it's a version, a specimen of it. And you'll still get all the birds. You'll still have all the insects on those trees. You'll still yeah. have the flowers and fruits that they produce. Um, but you're managing it for size because, okay. you know, you don't yeah, want yeah. to have... As do many people do it in, in their front gardens because yeah, I well, feel like, you know, <laughs> when I walk along the road, it's all, you just see the hydrangeas, don't you? Like that's yeah. as far as everyone goes with their, their gardening. But yeah, not enough people do it. I okay. think there's huge potential for those front garden spaces where, again, it gives you that sense when you come to your house of you're arriving into this place with trees yeah. and shrubs outside. Yeah. Um, they don't take, I mean, there's far less maintenance than a lawn. You're not mowing it. You're just doing a little bit of light pruning in the wintertime. It depends on what you plant. So things like elders and dog roses might need a bit of, you know, pruning every few weeks in the summertime and growing time. But again, it's it's really satisfying and you've made it yourself and you're uh, you're watching it and you're seeing all the birds coming and all the insects and the soil life is you know, uh, just making amazing connections under the ground as well. That's why they're so closely planted. So, yeah, I'd love to see. I mean, we'd love to see pocket forests in every front garden. So, Catherine, <laughs> can you come and help Suzanne to do that then? I would love to. Yeah, yeah I'd love to do that. That would be amazing. Yeah. What are you doing now? <laughs> <laughs> Let me get my Kango hammer. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much, Suzanne. And Catherine, it's been absolutely amazing talking to you. And I would really urge everyone to read that piece if they haven't already. Thanks, we have a thing uh, called dwell time where we monitor how long people spend on an article and it was incredible the dwell time on that one I think nice. people were just at the weekend just reveled in it and loved That's reading amazing. your words and as you said it gave people hope and made people feel that there is positive stuff that we can do and yeah. that people are doing yeah. um, so just final word from you about like just to encourage other people maybe to look at their own spaces and other, yeah. their, their relative spaces Absolutely. Um, you know, there's so many, there's so many good projects happening. There are people, um, Government Nail does this wonderful little mini pond as well. So you can put a mini pond into your garden. It doesn't have to be a full pocket forest. It could just be one native tree and two shrubs. But, you know, make it a little bit more than one tree because uh, those lone trees are very lonely. Um, <laughs> they do need company. And yeah, you you won't believe uh, we had a, a nursery guy say to us people don't know they want a wild garden until they have one and then they realize i love this and and they talk to their neighbors about it and it becomes a kind of a halo effect as well and we just see things differently and we have to we have to begin to do that gorgeous thank you so much Catherine Thanks, Cleary Rachel. and uh, come back again and tell us when they're it's even more wildy yeah, and you when you're down. welcome and I will an outside broadcast definitely <laughs> I'll get me tent I hope it's not raining <laughs> thanks Catherine thanks Rosie that was Catherine Cleary there and isn't she just fantastic doesn't it make you want to just run out and plant a tree well go to pocketforests.ie for more information and if Suzanne does get it together to do that front garden of uh, shrubs and trees we'll come back and let you know all about it. If you enjoyed the episode and the podcast, please leave us a review or subscribe to the podcast as it really makes a difference to us. The podcast is produced by Suzanne Brennan and by me, Roisin Ingle, with JJ Vernon on sound. Talk to us on social at IT Women's Podcast or email us on the Women's Podcast at irishtimes.com. That's it for me. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.